Revelation chapter number five. Revelation chapter number five. Uh, tonight, uh, last week we uh, talked about the throne. We talked about what we'll see around the throne. And um, Revelation chapter number five, it is literally the same event taking place that took place in chapter number four, um, but a different perspective. And uh, so we'll look at that uh, now. Chapter number five, verse number one, the Bible says, And I saw on the right hand of him, sorry, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. I'm in chapter five, verse number one. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven, sorry, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and every tongue and every people and every nation. And hast made us unto our gods, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the sea, or excuse me, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Oh, there you go. Look, you can do that. It's all right. And the four beasts said, there we go. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So, Revelation chapter number five is literally, we entered into the throne room last uh, uh, Wednesday night. And we began to see the majesty of God. In this same throne room is where this um, uh, this action is transpiring, this, this unsealing or looking for someone to be able to unseal uh, the books or as better translated, the scrolls um, here in Revelation chapter number five. So let's jump right in. Uh, in chapter four, we saw John caught up to heaven to the very throne room of God. There he gazed upon the rainbow circled throne of God and witnessed celestial beings acknowledging the glory of God in creation. The focus of chapter 4 was on the beauty and glory of God, and the, and the word there is on his throne. Throne is the word. The focus of chapter 4 was the beauty and glory of God on his throne. We talked about last week that throne is actually the key word uh, for all of the book of Revelation, because the word throne is mentioned 
many times throughout the book of Revelation. And it is the center focus. The throne is the center focus of the book of Revelation because him who sat on the throne, him who sits on the throne, is the one who has the power. The one who has all the majesty, all the glory, all the power. And so chapter 4 was the beauty and glory of God on his throne. Now, in chapter 5, our attention shifts to the seven-sealed book in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Chapters 4 and 5 actually describe one scene in heaven, with chapter 4 describing the throne room and the occupants of the throne, and chapter 5 dealing with the seven-sealed book and the only one worthy to open it. The only one worthy to open it. There is only one person, Jesus Christ, who is worthy to open the sealed book. You say, Pastor, where's the correlation? We talked about this last week a little bit. We talked about when Noah got on the ark, and uh, after, the, after the hundred years of preaching, and the rain began to fall, and Noah went into the ark, and the Bible says that, did Noah shut the door? No, who shut the door? God shut the door, and when God shut it, he sealed it, and he sealed it with his own might and his own power. There was only one person that could open the door. Who was that? It's God. Only one person could open the door. And such as it is with these seals, there is only one person that is worthy enough to open it. The word book in verse 1 should actually have a better translation of the word scroll. uh, Because in John's day there were no books as we know them today, only scrolls. The scroll in God's right hand was written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. So I don't want you to think about this as a literal book that you read. I want you to think of it as more of a scroll. Because literally when you talk about um, a scroll and if you've ever held one in your hand, the way that they roll up is what would make a perfect understanding of how that what was written on the scroll was there was so much written on it that it could not be contained on the front that it had to actually be written on the back as well. And so when you think about this scroll, you think about a scroll that opens up, it is literally sealed with seven seals. And that's what we're talking about tonight. The scroll was so full of writing that it could not be all contained on one side. And thus information overflowed to the back side as well. So what's the question that we all want to know? What's on the scroll, right? If you're like my wife, you know, uh, we know the UPS driver by heart. Because she loves this thing called Amazon. I mean, if she could buy milk on Amazon, I think she would. Um, and uh, so when the, when, it, when the doorbell rings, we go get the box and we bring it in. Even though she knows what's inside the box, it can't wait. It's got to be opened so we can see the actual contents of the box. And so if you're like that, the curiosity is getting the best of us. What is on this scroll? What's contained on this scroll? Well, I have bad news because we're not told in this chapter. You'll have to come back next time. We're not told in this chapter what is written on the scroll, but when the seals are broken in chapter number six, the judgments of God will be poured out on the earth. And that's what's inside of the sealed scroll. When the seventh seal is opened, the trumpets begin to sound, and we see that in chapters 8 and 9. Then at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, Revelation 10, 7 says, The mystery of God should be finished, as he hath described to the servants and the prophets. We are beginning now in chapter number 5 and chapter number 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 
to begin to open up this mystery. Open up this mystery of the things to come. We defended last week that, that we were uh, uh, confident, but again, uh, uh, many have different, many, uh, different uh, opinions and, and different thought processes about the coming of the Lord and, 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 and whether or not we're going to be here for the tribulation or if we're going to uh, uh, be here halfway through the tribulation or if we're going to be here all the way through the tribulation. And uh, we defended the fact that we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture based upon the word of God. And so now we're going to begin to see the mystery of the things that will be happening while we're in heaven and the mystery of God unfolded in these seven seals or these seven judgments. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 12, verse number uh, 8 and 9, uh, a correlation of prophecy. Daniel says, and I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and what? Sealed till the time of the end. That's right. And so we have here the, the prophecy beginning to unfold in front of us. And, and as we look at this, and, and, and I'll say this again as we get into chapter number 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. If you're not cautious and you're not careful, you begin to see the judgments of God and you begin to unfold the seals of God. And, and literally, if you're not cautious within your own mind and your own heart, you'll begin to be fearful of things to come. Can I tell you that if you're a Christian here today, you have no reason to fear. There is no reason to fear. Uh, because God, who is the author and who is the finisher of all of this, is the one who's in control. And, and the Bible says that, that he has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a what? A sound mind. And that's what we're supposed to use in order to interpret the word of God as a sound mind and the Holy Spirit of God. And so there's no reason to fear. There's actually reason for excitement. The seventh seal book contains the unfolding of the consummation of the age, the end of time as we know it, the setting up of Christ's kingdom and the inheritance of the saints who will reign with him. And that's us. There is excitement in this. There is a thrill in the fact that we know that God is the victor and that through all of this turmoil and through all this trouble, that in the end, God is going to set up the new heaven and the new earth and we're going to reign with him and rule with him um, and, 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 and be in victory. So first of all, I want to share with you tonight about the problem that, that was incurred. The problem. Chapter number five, verse number two the Bible says, and I saw and behold a white horse, excuse me, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse number 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? There was a problem right out of the gate. There was a problem. Who is worthy to open the book? A problem immediately arose when an angel asked in verse 2, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? The problem was this. That no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book. Not only were they not able to open the book, they were neither to look thereon. This is a serious problem that the angel looks upon and says, I want to know who's worthy. Who's worthy to open this book? For there, we cannot find a man. We can find no man that is worthy. Not only not worthy, but they can't even look upon this scroll. John says in verse 4, and I wept much. Now, I, I want you to understand where John's at. John is, 
I don't like to use this word, but for the sense of us understanding it, John was, was in a very uh, unconscious, deep moment in his life of being literally translated uh, into the heavens to see what's going on. So John is experiencing this almost firsthand. He's beginning to see what's happening. So here's John, and I want you to see it from his perspective. John is only at chapter number five. He has not gotten to chapter number 21. He is living it out as he's writing it and as he's unveiling it to us. So here's John in heaven, and, and the Bible says in verse chapter number four, verse number one, that he was caught up. And here we all are at the throne room of heaven, and he's beginning to see the majesty. And then he sees the scroll that is the, the very essence of who God is and the very purpose for God bringing him there. And they cannot find anyone to open it. And so the Bible says John began to weep because no man was found. What's the next word? Worthy. Worthy. Can you imagine that? You talk about a humbling experience. We're going to watch this happen. They're going to be looking around. We are going to be there. And they are going to say there is no man worthy to open the book. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? This is what it means. And I, 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 don't, want to, I don't want to sound cruel or rude or mean or anything like that. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that when we put it into perspective of God, we are nothing. We are nothing. We, we, we have a tendency to, to, to try to build ourselves up and, and, and think more of ourselves than probably we ought, ought to. But in the very presence of God, as the hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of people that are in heaven... No man was found worthy to open the book, neither to look thereon. Then I began to think, wait a minute. There are many great saints in heaven. What about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about Moses? What about Elijah? What about Peter? What about Paul? What about James? But none are worthy to open the scroll. Why? Why is no one worthy enough to open the scroll? Because of the nature of the scroll. Because of its contents. Because of its power. That's why no one was worthy to open the book. Later, when the seals of the scroll are broken, disasters will take place on earth. So we know the scroll has to do with the earth and its redemption. To better understand the nature of the scroll, we must remember what God said about the redemption of land in the Old Testament. This is very important as you begin to correlate all of this together. So to understand the nature of the scroll, we must go back to the Old Testament about the redemption of land, about how we get redeemed the land back, because that's what God's got to do. You realize that when God created the earth, it was what? Somebody just said it. It was perfect. It was perfect. The land was perfect. And then the enemy got in and he deceived Eve. And then Eve gave it to Adam and, and said, it's great. The apple or the fruit or whatever is great. Take a bite. 
And the Bible says when that happened, the land was cursed. <clears throat> the land was cursed. So now our world and our land has to be redeemed again. When we say, Pastor, the redemption was Jesus Christ on the cross. That was personal redemption. That was when we decide to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not immediately redeem the whole world. You understand that, right? You understand that it's a choice that we make to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. God does not take himself and plant himself inside of you. It's a choice that we make. So the whole world is not redeemed. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? That means we still have to sweat when we work. Right? That means the grass still grows. That means that there's still issues with the land. And so God has to redeem the land. So how does he do that? Well, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, the Bible says, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me. He said, it's not going to be gone forever. I am going to redeem it because it's mine. If an Israelite should lose the land God had allotted him, then a plan of redemption must be granted. So who is worthy to redeem the forfeited land? Who's redeemed to forfeit, redeem the forfeited land? Leviticus tells us, If thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. There's a redemption process. According to God's law, an Israelite could sell or lose his land only for a time. A lost estate in Israel could always be redeemed. It could always be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. How many of you have ever heard those two words before? A kinsman redeemer. Where, where is the most familiar passage in the word of God about a kinsman redeemer? Who is it? Ruth. Ruth with Boaz, Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. And that's, that goes all the way back to the Levitical law. This was to keep the transaction a private matter so as not to embarrass the family for losing the land. So redemption could always be possible by a kinsman redeemer. Therefore, the seventh sealed book contained the terms of redemption for the entire earth and the only one worthy to open it was a kinsman redeemer who could pay the price of redemption. And who could do that? Jesus Christ. He did that. To pay the price of redemption. Number two, the prevailer. Prevailer. The prevailer. Jesus Christ prevailed. Chapter number five. Verse number five. The Bible says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So here we have uh, 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 an elder. Remember the 24 elders? The elder says to John, hey, don't, don't weep. Don't worry. There is one who has prevailed. There is one who has overcome. And he can open the seal. He can open the scroll. John had begun to weep in verse 4 when no one was found worthy to open the scroll. But in verse 5, he is uh, comforted by one of the elders saying, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. Jesus was worthy because he had the redemption price. 
and because he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, and because he was the root of David. It is an amazing transaction when you begin to realize, and and I'm probably going to do this on a Sunday this month, um, talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you really knew the pattern or the the, the genealogy of where Jesus Christ, where the bloodline of David come from, it would absolutely surprise you if you've never studied it before. Because what you'll find out is that there's a lady and there's a man in the lineage of, of Jesus Christ who has a lot of baggage, a lot of issues. Matter of fact, one of them was a harlot. And you know what? The truth of the matter is, is that when we see that and we see the redemption of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary, it just proves to me this. No one is beyond the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the overcomer. He is the victor. The tribe of Judah was God's chosen kingly tribe that would rule his land. Therefore, Jesus was indeed the kinsman redeemer with royal rights because he was of the tribe of Judah. He was of the root of David and will rule from the new Jerusalem. And we'll talk about the new Jerusalem um, in further lessons. He alone had the right to open the book because he had prevailed. This is interesting. Uh, this might be a fact for some of your young people. The Greek word translated prevail from which we get the English word transliteration used by a sports company, Nike. Did you know that? Means victor or overcomer. That's what Nike means. It means victor or overcomer. And it comes from the word prevailed. He alone has prevailed. He alone. Why? Because he's the victor and he is the overcomer. It's the same word we find translated overcome in the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 that we've already studied. Not only is Jesus the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, but he is also the great prevailer who overcome the power of Satan at the cross and paid the price of redemption for all creation. He is the only one that is worthy. John looked to see the prevailer who was worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll. But instead of a lion, interesting enough, he saw a lamb with the marks of sacrifice on him. The Bible describes it as a lamb as it had been slain. This clearly links Jesus to the Passover lamb. This is going to be an amazing scene in heaven. All right, I just really want you to see this. They call him the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the Bible says it wasn't a lion that he saw. It was as a lamb with the marks of sacrifice on him. If we go back, and we're going to in just a moment, we go back and we remember the Passover. Remember what it all means and how that there had to be a sacrificial lamb and they had to put the blood on the doorpost. And, and if they saw, if the Passover lamb saw, or, or excuse me, the Passover angel saw the blood, he would pass over them and the firstborn would not be killed. And he looks at Jesus and he says that he is like a lamb. He's like a lamb with, with the marks of sacrifice on him. What were the marks of the sacrifice?
the marks of a sacrifice. Where did they put the blood? On the doorpost. The marks of a sacrifice on him. A lamb as it had been slain. Now it's interesting enough, as Brother Gerald just said, the way that they would actually sacrifice a lamb, there was only one way that they could kill them, and that was cutting their throat. It's the only way that you could kill a spotless lamb. It's interesting to note that when we get to heaven, there's going to be the possibility that we will see the marks of the throat of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice. You say, what does that represent, Pastor? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one as a Godhead. As a Godhead. Now, let's go to the Passover land. I'm going to tie it all together here for you. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 12, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goat. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the house, wherein they shall eat it. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague, meaning the first child or the firstborn being killed, shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now, when we look at this fact that Jesus Christ is literally going to look like or have the marks of a sacrificed lamb. You've got to remember when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he was brutally beaten. Do you remember? Brutally beaten. And the Bible says that when he returned after his resurrection, there was someone who doubted him. Do you remember that? Doubting who? Thomas. What did Jesus tell Thomas to do? To touch his hand and to feel his side. What does that tell me? That tells me that in Jesus, in his resurrected body, still had marks of his crucifixion. And I believe with all my heart when we get to heaven that the marks of crucifixion are still going to be on our Savior. Because he was in the resurrected form when that happened. You say, Pastor, why would it be that way? Number one, proof. And number two, worship. Worship. Because we've been talking about it and preaching about it and learning about it for years and years. And now to be able to stand before our Savior and to see the marks. I mean, do you remember? I mean, literally he was beaten so terribly that he was unrecognizable. The cat of nine tails. Beaten. Which would leave scarring. Just as the nails in his hands and in his feet 
and the spear in his side. You say, I never have understood that verse that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. I think that when we see Jesus for the very first time and realize the sacrifice that he made for you and us, I do not think that we'll be able to control ourselves. Because I don't believe we fully understand it until we see it. Now, it should also be noted that the lamb is standing. This is very important. It's very important. Look with me. Um, Let's see here. Here we go, verse number six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. This is not by accident. Stood a lamb. You say, what does that mean? It it emphasizes the resurrection rather than the laying dead from the crucifixion. Jesus is standing alive and ready to step forward and take the scroll. Previously, he had been sitting uh, in accomplishment with his father on his throne, Now he's standing and he's ready to act. He is saying, here I am. I am the resurrected Savior and I am ready to take the next mark. The lamb had seven horns. That's very interesting. Uh, Verse number uh, six again. Uh, Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So here we have a depiction of God, of Jesus. And we're going, wait a minute, seven horns and, uh, you know, all these, all these thought processes that, that we have here, seven horns and seven eyes and the seven spirits, what does all that mean? Well, the lamb had seven horns, which may be a reference to the incident when the children of Israel first entered the promised land and encountered the wicked city of Jericho blocking their way. Now, we don't know this 100%. Uh, this is just a thought um, as to why it looked like he had seven horns. Uh, Joshua chapter number six, it said, And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall come past the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout on the walls, Uh, of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. So this could very well represent, these ram's horns could represent uh, a a portion of a trumpet or trumpet-like device um, as Jesus is stepping forth. Uh, Literally, there could be a, a moment of music, if I could use that terminology, with these ram's Horns, Just as the walls of Jericho fell when the priests blew the seven trumpets of ram's horns, so the invisible evil walls that have kept Jesus from his promised inheritance will come tumbling down when the seven trumpets are sounding. It's, it's so interesting. You, you should one day study all the trumpets in the Bible. Trumpets are, are, are like the Bible instruments. Um, trumpets everywhere. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. And it's because of the authority of a trumpet uh, whenever it's blown and whenever it's sounded. Now, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. What does that mean? Well, we've already talked about that in our study of Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 4 and chapter 4 and verse number 5. As these seven spirits are in conjunction to the seven names of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we described those for you um, a few lessons back. So we have the seven trumpets, um, possibly. And then, of course, we have the seven names of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Christ comes to the center stage and takes the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now, I want you to see this. 
God is sitting on the front throne. Jesus is the only one worthy. And he goes up to the one sitting on the throne and he takes the scroll out of his right hand. Because Christ alone is worthy to redeem the world by taking and opening the seven-sealed scroll. Now, you, your mind, because you're very smart, I know, your mind is beginning to churn. And you're going, wait a minute. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. I saw you. You were looking at me. You're like, yeah, what about that one, Pastor? So how is he going to take it out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne? I'm going to be real honest with you. This is the first time I'll say it. I'm not sure. (laughs) And I'm okay with saying that. This could be an alliteration. It very well could be an alliteration. Um, Or it could be an actual event. Because we know that Gabriel, um, being the messenger of God as he is, could be in fact the one that is holding the scroll at this time. But again, I started out my statement with, I'm not 100% sure, okay? Uh, I'm giving you my thoughts. That's all I can do based upon study that I've done. And so, uh, so, so Christ takes it out from the throne, and Christ alone is worthy to redeem the world uh, by taking and opening the seven-sealed scroll. This is where it starts getting exciting, at least for me, is that the moment is about to happen, you know? It's all coming down to this. It's kind of like being at the birthday party when you're a kid, and uh, there's this huge present, and mom keeps giving you the smaller ones, and you're ripping them open, ripping them open, ripping them open, trying to get to the big one. Well, that's where we're at now. The big one is about to come. It's about to happen when, God, when Jesus Christ is going to open the seven-sealed scroll. Now, we kind of finish out this uh, chapter with the praise, with the praise that's going to happen. This is why it's so important that as Christians right now, we get into the habit of praising God. We get into the habit of just lifting his name up. We get into the habit of saying, you ready? Amen. It's okay to do that. There we go. It's all right. Because when we get to heaven, we are not going to be able to contain ourselves. We are go- There's going to be praise. We're going to be praising and praising and praising uh, uh, for the end of time. It's going to be, it's going to be like fourth down and ten on, uh, with two seconds left on the, on the clock. And, 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 and the, the quarterback somehow pulls out a Hail Mary and they score and they win and the place erupts. That's what it's going to be like all the time in heaven. Because there's Jesus. So can I tell you something? We just better get used to it now. We just better start practicing. It's all, it's all right. You say, Pastor, you're crazy. It's all right. We're going to be praising God all the time. All the hosts of heaven were well aware of the implication of the lambs taking the seven-sealed scroll. So they break forth... With three hymns of praise. We find those hymns in verse number 9, verse number 12, and verse number 13. This is very interesting to me. I don't know exactly what all this means, but this is very interesting to me. The number of singers praising Christ increase from 28 in verse number 8 to all of creation In verse number 13, look. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. 
having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Look at verse number 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever. So it goes from the four beasts and the 24 elders to literally the fish of the sea, praising God. All of creation. Now that's quite a change. That's quite a moment when you really think about this. Because I believe in a literal Bible, amen? I believe that what the Bible says is true. So if, if I believe what the Bible says is true, that means everything is tasked. There's no choice. Everything has to give praise to him. I don't know what that looks like, but I think it looks pretty neat. Everybody's singing blessing and honor and glory and power to him that sits on the throne. What a great, great thought. All of creation. The 24 elders who represent all saints of all times, each has golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Now... These vials or bowls apparently represent all the prayers of the saints that have been answered up until now. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Wow is right. Because look at verse number 8. I'm, I'm not making it up. Verse number 8, look what it says. And when he had taken the book and the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. Look what it says. Which are the, say it. Prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. And the truth of the matter is that there was a common prayer of all true Christians throughout centuries that will begin to be answered in chapter number 5. You say, Pastor, what's the prayer? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is on earth as it is in heaven. What a great thought. Verse 10 reveals the praise of the Lamb rests also in the fact that he had made a fallen human race into kings and priests who would reign on the earth. Verse number 10, and has made us under our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth, the Bible says. In verse 11, John sees and hears an even greater multitude joining in the chorus of praise. You ready for this? The phrase 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands simply means the number was beyond counting. It was beyond counting. It was an innumerable number of people singing praises to God. This innumerable heavenly host sings a sevenfold ascription of praise to the Lamb, saying, He is worthy to what? To receive power, to receive riches to receive wisdom, to receive strength, to receive honor, to receive glory, and to receive blessing. Wow. Wow. The use of the seven words suggests that all possible tribute and homage was given to Christ, since the number seven represents completion or totality. He was given all honor and praise that could possibly be given. In verse 14, every being in heaven joins the ascription of praise. And the four living creatures respond by saying, 
What do they say? Amen. Amen. Some have wondered if saying amen in a formal worship service is appropriate and biblical. Well, one must conclude that if it's proper in heaven, it must be appropriate on earth. Amen? It's all right. The third song of praise is in verse 13, and is both unto him that sitteth upon the throne, God the Father, and unto the Lamb, God the Son. The praise will never end, going on forever and ever. Pastor, what are we going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be praising the Lord. We're going to be praising the Lord. We're going to be worshiping with him. That's what we're going to be doing. All of this praise resulted from the Lamb taking the scroll from the Father's right hand, indicating that God's eternal plan of setting all creation free from sin and death and and of rendering judgment upon all who have rejected His Son is about to be accomplished. It's about to happen. One day, perhaps sooner than any of us realize, the seals will be broken and the eternal kinsman redeemer will redeem the earth and all of creation. Let me, let me finish this and I'll, I'll get to you. Revelation 5 makes it clear Jesus is worthy to claim and to rule not only the earth, but also all creation. Certainly this makes him worthy to claim and to rule every part of our lives. He's worthy tonight to receive our praise. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, in chapter 9, mm-hmm. it says that he took from every tongue and every tongue. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. 